Hey, have you listened to the podcast Slow Burn second season? No, I have not. I have not listened to Slow Burn season one. Oh, season one is about the Watergate scandal. Oh. Nixon. And the season two is about Bill Clinton, who turns out is kind of a monster. Well, yeah. And as far as presidents, I feel like Bill Clinton's presidency was like hosting SNL on a really great night with... Like a great 90s cast. Yeah. And he's like, I'm Bill Clinton, and here's Hootie and the Blowfish. And then he just, like, was the president for a while. And then, and then he'd hop like over and play some sax with them. And a very young intern and ruined her life, and we all, like, uh, joined in on it. It was, it was a really weird time. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean, two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land with the mason ring and schnauzer in his perfect hands. Here comes George, in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington, Washington. Hello and welcome to another POTUS Life. Today is September 20th, 2018, and my, 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 it's been quite a while. This is episode 21 of Washington's POTUS Life podcast. With me is my longtime friend and uh, lover, Justin Ozinga. It's great to be back after a long hiatus there. Had to get in some summer fun. Uh, Ryan was swarmed by problems of the Me Too movement. He had to <laughs> kind of walk away for a little bit. Had like, to kind of like you for a while. TK. He had to wait like nine months and then <laughs> pretend like he didn't make a bunch of people watch him jack off. And I, now I here. asked. I did ask. I was like, hey, can you, do you want to watch me jerk off? Yeah, and I told you no. And you just <laughs> did it anyways. Wait, that's wrong. I mean, I thought yeah. I, you just had to ask. Ah, oh well. So it's been a, a long time. We've probably forgotten some names, some parts of the story. Let's take a minute to recap. Early 1778, there were serious doubts about Washington's future. George was trying his best to reorganize the army, but a bunch of bitches in and out of the Congress had serious doubts and questions about his leadership. As much as Valley Forge sucked, the military got trained real good by the animated Baron von Steuben. And Washington was able to brass General Howe. How was he able to do this? Woods, Hills, Philadelphia. (laughs) And really, General Howe is just trying to get out of there. He's trying to get through the winter as he had already decided to resign in the fall. And even though George's generalship was in trouble, and some people, specifically Thomas Mifflin, Thomas Conway, General Horatio Gates, and his loudmouth assistant James Wilkinson, and of course who could forget General Charles Lee, these were the men on the fuck George Washington wagon who were actively trying to tarnish his reputation and make him look like a real dummy. Henry Lawrence, president of the Continental Congress and father of fabulous John Lawrence, the trusted aide de camp to Washington, was actively working to bolster his reputation and give him the things that he needed, such as blankets and socks and, and clothing boots, food. So all these shitheads got what was coming to them, and Conway eventually resigned his commission as Inspector General, opening the door for Barron to step in and actually do stuff. Kanye was challenged to a duel (laughs) 
was shot in the mouth <laughs> and fled to France. <laughs> and actually ended up writing a nice letter, a nice I'm sorry note, with a musket wound in his mouth. Thomas Mifflin was accused of embezzlement and resigned as quartermaster. Washington, in need of a strong quartermaster who wasn't talking shit about him, chose Nathaniel Green. Nathaniel? Who everyone much... Nathaniel Green, who was a trusted little boy. Good little boy. (laughs) And then you have Gates. So on February 6th, the French signed a treaty of amnity and commerce, as well as recognized the independence of the United States. This was good news for the Patriots, bad news for Britain, and put France in a really interesting spot. A country that was being run by a monarchy was supporting rebels that were overthrowing another monarchy. That's a tricky situation and would ultimately cause some problems for the French. George was so excited about the news of these treaties, he let the Baron von Steuben have that great military parade with all the fancy pinwheels and synchronized gunfire to show off just how trained the ever-living fuck this army had been. He whipped them into shape in only a few short months. Also, little did anyone in the American theater of war know that the British Parliament was legitimately not wanting a war with France. The American theater of war had already cost the crown enough money. It wasn't economically feasible at the time for Britain to fight another war with France and maintain war in the Americas. In March, Parliament would actually repeal many of the acts that pissed off the colonists to begin with. They wanted to come to the table. This could essentially erode support for the Patriot cause. Although, I guess this is a case of, like, too little, too late, right? It's interesting that during the winter, Howe didn't attack the Patriots. I mean, he had no clue how bad the Patriots had it. Which, like, why didn't he have spies up in that shit? I mean, I'm sure he did, but why... He clearly didn't know the significance of their issues. He was in a good position to attack. Winter assaults weren't common in the European style of warfare, but they weren't unheard of. Major Light Horse Harry Lee, father of Robert E. Lee, commented, It is wonderful how he could omit venturing a winter campaign to his promising every advantage and to his antagonist menacing every ill. How could it very easily have pummeled the Patriot force had he marched on them in mass? There was a fraction in Parliament that urged this action to end once and for all the rebel uprising. And ironically enough, there was actually a fraction in Congress that wanted to muster the entirety of the militia, whatever the fuck that means, and pounce on Clinton's troops while they wintered. And these people wanted to go against the British Army without any regular troops. They thought they were unnecessary and actually dangerous. They believed that a standing army was a threat to Republican ideals, which, what the fuck, right? (laughs) Hey, did you say pounce on Clinton? (laughs) Are we we weaving the theme of, of Bill through this entire thing? Maybe. Maybe. But these guys could not pay, feed, or clothe their standing army? How could they possibly fund any type of militia? This proves to me that being delusional and out of touch with reality is the tradition of our American politics, right? 
Meanwhile, in April, Washington gave Lafayette 2,200 men to establish an observation post. He got his little tushy handed to him, but Washington actually looked at this as a British humiliation, because why not? General troop strength estimates were around 11,000 on both sides at this point. However, it's important to note that during the winter at Valley Forge, there were only about 7,500 men. A lot of these guys would go home for the winter, go back to their farms, their family. They wouldn't stay in winter at a camp. Uh, luckily for George, there was a large recruiting campaign over the winter. Uh, it reminds me of like the scene in The Patriot when they're going to all the taverns and collecting all the men. And by May, there were about 15,000 troops hanging out at Valley Forge. And actually, it's really interesting. I started kind of like looking in the troop numbers on both sides. It's like really hard to get an actual number nailed down because of like reserve troops, active troops, German troops. Like what numbers are we counting? So that was like it's actually really really hard to get the number uh, down. Anyway, after a pretty brutal winter at Valley Forge, equipment begins to pour in from all over. French shipments provided much-needed supplies. Also, let's not forget the capture of Burgoyne's army. That provided a shit ton of supplies, specifically artillery for Knox and the rest of the artillery boys to play with. Headed into June, there are over 50 minor skirmishes that take place around Philadelphia and New Jersey. Some are your run-of-the-mill scavenging parties. Some are the British actually trying to smokescreen Washington into what their movements are. They were kind of trying to be like, we're over here, we're over here. So that pretty much brings us to where we are. This wonderful fuckfest that we're about to embark upon. General Howe's departure. How did it happen? How did we get here in the story? These are all Howe questions. General Howe however, had sent his letter of resignation earlier that fall. Which actually might be part of the reason why Howe didn't attack. He wanted to get the hell out of there. He didn't want to risk the loss of a battle or his troops. He was working on an exit strategy, so uh, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to try to fuck anything up here. I'm just going to leave on good terms. Oh, did you say exit strategy? Exit. Unlike George W. Bush during the Iraq War. <laughs> Oh, man, that was like Mission a weekend update joke. M- Mission accomplished. Howe received word in April of 78 that he could call it quits. And then that was the letters game, of course. You know, you're going back and forth over the Atlantic. It's taken for freaking ever. <laughs> yeah. I bet the media would have taken longer back then to find out about Monica. Oh, Bill. <laughs> Speaking of Bill, General Henry Clinton is picked to replace him. How peace the fuck out so fast Clinton was under the gun to figure shit out on the fly. Clinton was a different kind of man compared to Howe. That's right. In Clinton's own words, he was, quote, a shy bitch. No joke. That's what he said about himself. (laughs) He was incredibly reserved. Interestingly enough, too, from age 9 to 19, he lived in the colonies. His father was the governor of New York from 1741 to 1751. At 19, he went back to Britain. He ended up serving as a captain during the Seven Years' War. He served in Germany, not in the American theater of war. So Clinton came over with Howe as a general. In 1775, he led forces into the South early, and his attack on South Carolina was uh, thwarted by pirates. So he's a winner. Winner chicken dinner. Yeah. That same April brought back General Charles Lee via prisoner exchange. 
Which a fun fact, General Clinton knew Lee from when he fought in Germany. They both fought over there together. Uh, he was Lee was probably in Poland, and they probably met around there. But yeah, they actually knew each other. He had spent 16 months as a captive of the crown. Was probably drinking some good wine, living comfortably. The British had courted Lee, who in turn probably gave a lot of information on George's army. Back to the Continental Army, Lee still thinks Washington is a douchebag and continues to play the contrarian. Also that spring, the Redcoats decide to abandon Philadelphia in favor of their very secure New York headquarters. To be precise, issued her orders to evacuate on March 21st. The orders reached Philadelphia May 23rd. Howe left May 24th, and Clinton was like, what the fuck, fuck my life, oh my god, why me? But very much to Clinton's dismay, along with his orders to relieve Howe of command and surrender Philadelphia, he was also to dispatch 5,000 men to the West Indies and 3,000 men to St. Augustine to secure British positions against any possible French attack. This is why the British did not want the French to get involved. And Clinton isn't headed into this command situation in any good way. He's kind of looking like a fucking loser. Upon learning this, Washington contemplates if he will harass the retreat because he totally wanted to. He did. But how much is he willing to gamble? George is afraid of gambling. We remember that. In the early episodes, he thinks that gambling makes him a bad little boy. But could he risk not gambling, you know? Most of the Continental Generals were against the strong use of force here. But Washington is like, I'm in an 80s action movie. He must defy the War Council. Like so, every good action movie, he's got to defy I will the War de- Council. I will defy the War Council. I could just hear his inner monologue. So not the entire War Council was against action, though. There were several opinions submitted to Washington in writing. So, quote, I may compare one with the other, weigh and digest the whole and take my measure accordingly. So he made these guys write all this shit down, which is pretty smart. Brigadier General Anthony Wayne, uh, Batman uh, great great grandfather. I'm going ha- to have to disagree with you on there. Um, no, I think that's true. No. Bruce Wayne's great-great-grandfather was named Anthony Wayne, which would have been about in the 1800s. But you know Uh, what? Add a couple great-greats, and you are absolutely fucking correct. Because DC Comics (laughs) at one point did make Anthony Anthony Wayne Batman's ancestor. That's fascinating, actually. He appears to Batman in uh, a couple dreams in a few issues. That's kind of cool was, to know. That was the, how creative people were in the 60s. Like, Imagine you know that. what? They both have the last, the, the same last name. Let's uh, make this a character. Let's just do it. It's, let's do it. Uh, John Patterson and also Major General Lord Sterling were all about attacking Philly, but only Philly. Actually, Lord Sterling was even more 80s action movie than George Washington. He wanted to attack both Philadelphia and New York. Wayne was all about that action life, too. He was going all Howard Dean on the group. He actually just wanted to attack everywhere. He's like, you know what? Let's just let's go everywhere. We're just going to go. We're going to go to Yorktown. We're going to go to Philadelphia. We're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Anyway, Brigadier Generals Henry Knox, Peter, I'm not going to attempt that last name, Enoch Poor, 
and Owen a couple Berg. other dudes that don't matter, as well as uh, General Nathan Green wanted action only in New York. And this was actually generally Did the more popular. Did you not want to say Peter Mullenberg because you're anti-Semitic? I don't. I couldn't pronounce it. Is that a Jewish last name? <laughs> no, nah, it just says Berg, so I'm actually the one being racist. But Moylenberg. Um, go on. <laughs> The Europeans, perhaps the first group most familiar with war, uh, all wanted to take it easy and hang out in Valley Forge. The Marquis de Lafayette, Inspector General Steuben, and a few others wanted to hang out in Valley Forge, training, collecting food, waiting to see what the British were going to do. This obviously couldn't happen. Armies aren't supposed to play wet, hot American summer. They're supposed to fight. Although, if Baron von Steuben wanted to stay... I'd probably take that into consideration. He knew better than anyone what the capabilities of the Valley Forge troops were. So just really quick, I want to talk about the militia. There's this guy named Major General Dixon, a guy who was really into the militia. He was meeting with this guy Maxwell to protect New Jersey. Dixon wrote to a guy named Livingston. He was the governor of New Jersey at the time. And Dixon was all, tell everyone they have to join the militia. By June 16th, British movements looked imminent. That would have exposed all New Jersey residents to harassment by the British. Livingston agrees to call half of all available militia forces and send them to meet up with Dickinson and Maxwell. The New Jersey militia, just like the regulars, had been training for years and spent considerable time both in training and actually engaging the enemy. Just like the regulars at Valley Forge, these guys were whipping into shape. By the time serious British movement began, Dixon would have 1,000 decently trained militia under his command. That's like a fucking lot to me. Those numbers aren't necessarily big overall, but they're not small either. Also, it's very interesting to me how Washington was applying the militia in his overall warfare tactics. Initially, I assumed he was just throwing them in as cannon fodder to protect the main forces. As it turns out, although Washington really did not like the militia, he knew they had a better understanding of the areas where they were operating than the main force. So generally and specifically for the campaign season of 1778, he would use them to protect local populations, prevent uprisings and mobilization of loyalists, and guard POWs, guard local commerce, conduct small aids, conduct small raids, protect supplies. Did you just uh, say aids? No, 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 say aids. Protect supplies, build fortifications. As much as he didn't want these guys to represent the colonies in any official military capacity, he understood they had value. And surprisingly, right around June 16th, when the British really began to step up the evacuation and wanted to smokescreen the Patriots with random skirmishes, Washington, and more specifically Maxwell, hung back and let Dickinson and his men rebuff the British, which they did really well. The militia and the Continentals were learning how to work together. And this was super important because if you didn't have the militia breaking up and fighting back against the British regulars the way that they did, the British regulars could have massed and posed a very real threat to the primary continental forces. Historian Thomas M. Huber referred to this as compound warfare, regular and irregular forces working in concert to boost the efficiency. Time to end the foreplay. Let's get into this bitch. So on the 17th of June, 1778, Dixon sends Washington a letter stating, quote, a gentleman of reputation who lives near Philadelphia sent me word last evening that the enemy were very industrious in transporting their troops, artillery, and wagons over to Cooper's Ferry. The intelligence comes so many different ways and so well authenticated that it does not admit of a doubt, end quote. The British were on 
on the fucking move. Beginning around June 12th, they loaded a bunch of ships with supplies, women, children, and the Hessian troops because apparently these guys were a fucking flight risk. These barges departed Philly and were destined to New York. Next, on the 15th, the moves across land begin. The British Navy would begin to ferry men and equipment across the Delaware. By the 17th, the field artillery, infantry, and light dragoons had been evacuated. All said and done, around 11,000 men plus equipment were moved across the Delaware in under four days. That's fucking huge. The baggage train consisted of 5,000 horses, 1,500 wagons, and was 12 miles long. That is massive. And the, the way that that would slow your military down as you were trying to move forward, specifically evacuate had to have been fucking really insane to deal with. That same day, Patriot forces began sweeping across the city looking for any British stragglers. Now, on the 17th, after militia mastermind Dickinson sent Washington that little letter, Washington put all of his officers on notice. He issued orders that morning of the 18th that the troops would head out to hunt for Clinton and his troops. Washington also issued orders for Lee to head out with three brigades of men at head of the primary forces. He was to scout where Washington was planning on landing the rest of the troops as well as scout for the route Clinton was going to take into New Jersey. Now here's where it gets weird for me. The night of the 17th, Washington gathers the generals and begins to ask questions you think they would have already considered. Questions like, should we attack the British while they evacuate Philadelphia? What? <laughs> like, they already are outside of Philadelphia. What? What? So, should Dickinson and Maxwell provide an interruption to the evacuation in order to allow the Patriots time to muster towards Philadelphia? Like, they weren't even close, and the British were, like, crossing the Delaware, and they're like, should we go to Philly? So... They also were thinking, should the troops just head straight for the Delaware and cross? Should the army take a more southern route when trying to catch up with Clinton? They didn't really know if he was going to go north or south. They had really, they had no clue where they were going. Guys, you had all winter to think about this. At the very least, you knew for the past several weeks that this was definitely going to happen. There were spies in Philadelphia. I, I don't, I don't get it. So he asked it. Add up. It doesn't. It really doesn't add up. So uh, Washington begins to again write, ask his generals, like, "Hey, in writing, we want to compare and contrast your thoughts." And at this time, no one wanted to move against Philadelphia during the retreat. Many were afraid the rear guard would actually pose too great a risk to the troops. Some were open to supporting Maxwell, Dickinson, and the other militia near New Jersey. Steuben was all about trying to rush and advance troops into northern New Jersey to give the high ground there. So he was trying to think like, okay, how can we get a strategic advantage now that we know they're moving? And much of these guys were all pretty sure this retreat was uh, to New York. But honestly, like I said, not too sure. Ultimately, 15 of the 17 would rule against pursuing action against Clinton if they found him. So they're like, okay, if we do find him, let's not do anything, okay? But one person in particular... And we mentioned it before, it was all about the engagement. It was that bold, that brave, that brawny Anthony Wayne. And that's where he, Batman gets it from. And that's he that's exactly where he gets it from. Right here. We're seeing the birth of the Batman. Right here. 
this is where it all begins. Everyone gather around. We're about to get into the story. He figured that if Clinton would be weighed by his own baggage train, the troops would be mentally weakened by the thought of retreating and that the Patriot boys would be rallied by catching Clinton and his boys during a retreat. He was a real war romanticist for sure. The other dude's all about action was militia general. The other dude all about action was a militia general by the name of John Caldwater. And shit, this dude was all about it. He surmised that a win would be political gold and a loss wouldn't necessarily matter because there was no real way that the British could hold a position from so far off the coast. He knew it was inevitable that they would have to leave. And I want to take a moment to read through his written statement to Washington. It's important because his position was almost identical to Lord North. And Lord North was a guy over in Britain leading the war cabinet in Parliament. So this guy wrote, this is John Caldwater of the militia, Might their present situation prove very injurious when we consider their strength and without any exception of reinforcements, and we consider the situation of their affairs in Europe. After considering all circumstances relating to the war in America, the most important of which are the great reduction of their forces by frequent actions, defeats, desertions, captures, and other casualties. So he's saying these guys are all leaving and the immense sum of money has already been spent. The little territory acquired after three years of war and the idea of conquest extinguished even in the minds of the ministry. Like they were like, we were not going to go over there and conquer anymore. Like we're just going to have to maybe take this at a a net nothing. You know, like we'll just give them. They kind of were already thinking we're going to have to give it to this anyway. So the fall of stock and injury done in other respect to the public credit, the difficulty of raising troops throughout the kingdom, the American war very unpopular in England and Ireland, and lastly, acknowledgement of the independence of the United States by France and the treaty entered into with the net with that nation. I am induced to believe I say from all these circumstances that their whole force now in America will be drawn from these United States for defense of Canada with their Indian islands and dominions near home possessions of this opinion. It appears to me very everything and hope nothing to fear a defeat of our army will be no essential disadvantage to us and cannot in any least serve their cause. So he's saying, fuck it. Well, like if we fight them and they lose a bunch of men, even if we lose our whole army, there's no way they can continue to sustain a force here. It, eventually they're going to have to leave. He does so, have, a, have a good point there. He's got a good point. So on the morning of the 18th, around 11.30 a.m., official word reached Washington. The British were in full retreat and headed to New York through New Jersey. In a way, it's a good thing they didn't spend too much time planning anything because once George got this news, he was literally like, fuck it. Let's go get him and decides to send 6,000 troops across the Delaware to harass Clinton. This was a mix of regular troops and militia. George holds another war cabinet on June 24th to work out how the Continental Army will approach Clinton's army. Should they throw everything they have at them? Should they just allow them to go back to New York unharassed and hope to fight another day? Most of the generals publicly still did not want massive general action. Many favored small engagements harassing Clinton's flanks and rears, but nothing solid. 
This led Hamilton to write to the War Council that a timid conclave would, quote, have done honor to the most honorable midwife society. <clears throat> he was calling these guys pussies. And even though basically everyone kind of in public was like, no, we shouldn't go anywhere privately, Wayne, Hamilton, Lafayette, and Green were strongly urging Washington to throw a bulk of his forces at Clinton, hoping for a decisive defeat, maybe one that could even end the war. They saw opportunity and they knew this was a war of minds and the honor of the Patriot Army must be defended. So George knew it was time. He deputized Charles Lee to lead 6,000 hand-picked men, not like just regular old men. Like he literally was like, give me all your fucking best men. We're going to send them over first. Whatever, maybe good idea, bad idea. We'll see. He sent them off with Charles Lee to go attack. And he kind of wanted to like hold Clinton until the rest of the Patriot forces could arrive. Charles Lee actually turns the assignment down, stating that, quote, it would be better suited for a young volunteering general, unquote. Like, what the fuck is he talking about? Leading 6,000 handpicked troops directly into conflict with the enemy is not the job of a young volunteering general. It's the job of a seasoned military veteran. You think Lee, a seasoned military veteran, would have jumped on this chance. My assumption is that Lee was actually afraid both of being defeated and killed on the battlefield, but also of Washington winning. Keep in mind, Lee thought himself a superior and distinguished military veteran. He had a way he wanted to operate this war. He wasn't getting his way. So basically, he was throwing a temper tantrum. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I'm not sure if someone talked to him or if he just realized he was being a little fucking jerk, but he came to his senses and decided he would command the leading force after Washington indeed took his advice and assigned Lafayette as the leader of this fighting force, which is funny because remember how earlier we mentioned how Lafayette didn't have like a really great track record with taking troops out and like doing well. I think Lee at that point was like, fuck, I don't want this little pipsqueak over here. That's a Frenchman to lead all these people. I I'll do it. I'll fucking do it. I actually also think that it part of a reason that Lee changed his mind, he would be set up in a place where he could potentially make moves that would shame Washington. So not not only could he win, but he could make Washington look fucking silly. I'm not too sure why Washington was trusting Lee with this whole assignment anyway. It doesn't seem very smart. He just came back. Like, he was just with the British. He came back to Valley Forge. This is their first big military engagement. He's like, you want to take half the army for a spin? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That doesn't, I don't know, doesn't make any sense. So anyway, on June 27th, the British approached the area where the Monmouth Courthouse is. So on the afternoon of the 27th, Washington rides to meet with Lee and he issues him orders. At this point, Washington and the main body are positioned in English town, which is about six miles away from the British army. Lee is only about two miles away and he's poised for, he's poising for an attack. And also supporting Lee is Lafayette with 1,000 troops of his own because Washington felt bad he gave command. Uh, command of a bunch of troops when he was like, yeah, I'm going to give you command. No, just kidding. Lee's actually going to lead those guys now. So just kidding. And so he's like, here's a thousand men. Have fun. And uh, there was also a bunch of smaller militia troops. So there's probably maybe about like seven, eight thousand troops total out here. The number varies wildly. Washington included with this meeting that he had um, with Lee, Lafayette, Maxwell, Scott, and Wayne. However, and this is kind of really fucking foreshadowing weird, there were no minutes taken of the meeting. 
We are not 100% sure what the orders to Lee were. We're pretty sure, however, that the order was to attack when the Sitchin became when the situation became advantageous for the Patriots. However, how Lee would lead the attack was basically left up to him, which is probably a fucking mistake if you intend to synchronize precise military movements on a battlefield. But Washington wanted to leave some latitude if anything crazy happened. For example, if Lee encountered the entire British army in an ambush, keep in mind, they really did not for sure know what was going to happen. Although, to this point, we assume that Washington was more intent on bloodying the British, and Lee may have mistaken his intent for a desire for all-out battle, which he would have been more familiar with, because that was kind of his past, but he was unprepared for the numbers he had. Although, you think about 600... 6,000 hand-picked troops should have been able to deal with a pretty significant blow. The lack of specific orders will turn out to be a pretty big fucking deal. And so Lee barely got any sleep the night of the 27th, in part because I'm sure his nerves were fucking wrecked. However, the same could have been said for Washington. So another reason he didn't get any sleep was Washington was sending him orders all night long. We have records that he was sending him orders at like 1.45, 2 a.m. in the morning, just sending people out to go uh, uh, move some troops to the left. Oh, I think we could put some people over here. Oh, I'm thinking about this too. And it's actually kind of Good romantic. Thing you didn't have Twitter. This no joke. The story was that Washington that night was so nervous about what was going to happen that he slept underneath of a tree in the field with all of his men. So he didn't take a tent. He didn't stay in a house. He actually was, he, he ordered all of his men to sleep on their guns in case the British attacked and he slept out there with them. And I, I actually think that's kind of like a really touching, heartwarming story about George Washington. But at 5 a.m., Lee is alerted that the British have begun to move and begins to move his troops toward Monmouth. He wanted to head out ASAP. However, his militia guides were nowhere to be found well fuck the militia i guess this was not a good start and with lee behind and this would put lee behind schedule ahead of lee is the militia just to redraw this picture headed towards monument we have a tip of the spear the militia who is familiar with the area then lee a little way back then washington and so around 7 or 8 a.m on june 28th the militia engages some uh some queen's rangers who quickly retreat. These were the first shots fired that day. At this point, things start to heat up, literally and figuratively. The temperature reaches around 100 that day. By noon, Washington was already reporting soldiers expiring because of heat. Just imagine soldiers stripping off their packs, their belts, their shirts. Hello. But like I was saying, things... That's my kind of battle. But like I was saying, things start to heat up and Lee actually starts the battle off really well to i mean i was it was interesting i read the entire account there's like this 400 page book called uh fatal sunday really great that goes through every minute that we have an understanding of lee does really well for like the first half of his engagement the militia's finding favorable positions wayne and lafayette their troops move to the front everything's going great for lee until he gets fucking spooked clinton notices that on the right of all these forces there's a weakening of of the forces and he starts concentrating a bunch of forces over to Lee's right flank. This scares him and instead of directing more troops down there, he begins to freak out and retreat. <laughs> so there's a couple kind of things that really go wrong. There's not a lot of communication between Washington 
Lee, Lee Lafayette, all these troops. So there's really just pandemonium and panic and everyone's kind of just doing whatever the fuck they want. And with all this mass confusion going on, Lee ends up sending an aide to alert Washington of the retreat. When Washington met with the aide carrying the news, he was actually fucking horrified. He's like, I don't think this is true. And hey, man, he this, he's talking to the aide here. He goes, if you tell anyone, I will fucking whip you. So like, don't say anything to anyone about what I think is <laughs> happening. He rides to the main body to check out what the fuck is going on. And imagine this scene. Washington crests a hill, expecting to see Lee's men fully engaging the enemy. Instead, men are running towards him while he is charging towards the British. He instantly starts shouting commands for them to turn around and not fucking retreat. He then meets with Lee. Damn. He gave Lee the worst verbal bitch slap I have ever ever heard like like from historically people are saying that this was it he used every fucking word in the book one by sound like this and i want to look him straight in the eye and i want to tell him what a cheap lying no good rotten four flushing low life snake licking dirt eating inbred overstuffed ignorant blood sucking dog kissing brainless dickless hopeless heartless fat ass bug-eyed stiff-legged spotty lip worm-headed sack of monkey shit he is hallelujah holy shit that's a about right. One innocent bystander said, Washington cursed at Lee till the leaves shook on the tree. It was, quote, charming and delightful. Never have I enjoyed such swearing before or since. Uh, Lafayette <laughs> said it was the only time he ever heard Washington swear. And Lee stated, quote, I confess, I was disconcerted, astonished, and confounded by the words and manner in which His Excellency accosted me. So, Yosemite Sam George Washington stopped the retreat of Lee's men and actually did some of the in-the-moment thinking that he's not really known for. And uh, maybe (laughs) check out some of the artwork depicting this battle because it looks pretty badass. It's awesome. Lafayette claimed, His presence stopped the retreat. His graceful bearing on horseback, his, his calm and deportment, which still retained a, a trace of displeasure, were calculated to inspire the highest degree of enthusiasm. I thought then, as now, that I have never beheld so superb a man. Mm, that sounds sexy. Wow. Turned on. Sometimes, you know, hang in there for a moment. George Washington sounds like the leader of the Rajneesh movement. Osha, Bhagwan Shreer, Rajneesh, Archaya, Rajneesh. <laughs> <laughs> And thank Bogwan for Steuben's training. Washington actually had troops that he could order for a change. They knew formation. These were important things in swords and bells and they guns. They could shoot their guns in the air. They could do pinwheels. Pew, pew. These were not the stormtroopers from the original three, <laughs> original trilogy. George rode all over the battlefield in the blazing heat, weirdly continuing to avoid death and shouting orders at the Continentals. At one point, his horse dropped down heat exhaustion. Earlier, a cannonball had nearly taken out that same horse. And that would have been a real spoiler for the horse dying later that day. The fighting stopped around six as everyone was tired as fuck. Washington spent the rest of the night telling Lafayette what a soft dick bitch Charles Lee was. And he actually used those words, soft dick bitch. 
Then they fell asleep together under a tree or something. That sounds interesting. <laughs> George dreamed about attacking at daybreak and maybe going through two horses the next day. But Clinton, that's right, took a play from George's retreat book and gave him the midnight slip. Yeah, did. With bogus <laughs> campfire lights. <laughs> I know so, a thing or two about the midnight slip. <laughs> That's awesome. I fucking love it. This battle was absolutely a huge deal. It was the longest single day of battle in combat in the Revolutionary War. It was the only time that Clinton and Washington would directly meet one another in the field. And it was the last battle in the Northern Theater until Yorktown, which is like three years later. So it's pretty crazy. This is this is actually basically the last battle that George Washington would f- fight with his main army until Yorktown three years later. Nuts. So who won this battle? Did Lee retreat because he had to Or was he lacking the ability of his duty? It's all kind of confusing, right? And let me say, figuring out all of this was like really fucking confusing because there's a historian that talks a lot about this stuff and has written a lot of stuff. I can't remember his name right now, but he talks that that there's no real true account of exactly what went down. So it's it's kind of hard to track it all down. But uh, Mercy Otis Warren in her book about the revolution wrote this quote, and I think it's... uh, Fitting. After the Battle of Monmouth, both, par- both parties boasted their advantages, as is usual of indecisive. Uh, after the Battle of Monmouth, both parties boasted their advantages, as is usual of indecisive action. So it was a, really a draw. The Patriots did scare the British enough, quote, I guess, if you could say, to make them want to execute a midnight retreat. However, the death toll was about the same on both sides, and the British did manage to get back to New York, which was actually what they were trying to do in the first place. So eh, this was really nothing, I guess, in the whole scheme of it. But it really was quite big. Definitely a big day for fucking Charles Lee. Uh, However, in the War of Hearts and Minds, I think the Patriots won. The British ultimately couldn't hold their capital, and they were forced back to New York. Now, as for General Lee, Mr. Retreaty Leedy, well... He was pissed that Washington yelled at him in front of the troops, specifically in the field of battle, even more specifically during what he considered a worthwhile retreat. So he wrote Washington a nasty little letter and demanded an apology. Washington was used to this type of behavior from Lee. Obviously, I mean, the dude had fucking been captured by the fucking British at a whorehouse the year before. So shit. You know what I mean? Like Washington was totally Such ready a pain to- in the ass. This he whole was- war. He was really a pain in the ass. So from what we understand, Washington replied, was annoyed, but was willing to let the incident go. However, Lee sent a second letter demanding a court of inquiry to clear his name a court-martial. He knew his reputation was ruined and that this was last-ditch effort to save himself. I mean, for a dude that was just returned to Valley Forge, like I said, for a winter after a 16-month POW situation, you think he would be cool and just, like, lie low, right? But he was... Definitely not that kind of a guy. That wasn't his style. He definitely considered himself more sophisticated and a much better military commander than Washington. Lee was brought up on three very specific charges, and those were disobedience of orders and not attacking the enemy despite repeated instructions to do so, misbehavior before the enemy in making an unnecessary, disorderly, and shameful retreat, and disrespect to the commander-in-chief in two letters 
General and Lee. To really, to, to sum it up, he was Washington's bad little boy. He was Washington's just not. He was his naughty little boy. He wanted to spank him. He just wanted to give him a little spanking. General Lee represented himself in court because, I mean, why not? Lord Sterling, who was actually good friends with Washington, was the presiding officer. That's awkward. And no surprise here. He was found guilty on all three charges except the wording of his court-martialing omitted uh, shameful when speaking about the retreat. So really, he was just found guilty of being a fucking jerk. Um, However, I did find it interesting that under questioning, both Hamilton and Lafayette, both of whom did not like Lee, admitted that there was no letter or minutes that can prove without any doubt that Washington did indeed order all of like an all out offensive attack on the British. I think that they were like, yeah, no, we don't actually have proof of any of that. Lafayette did, however, deal a blow to Lee when he stated that General Lee lacked an overall plan for engaging the enemy, which is kind of a bad idea. If he had a plan, the Patriot armies could have avoided a partial retreat and could have possibly even taken Clinton's army then and there. As a punishment for this court-martial, Lee was dismissed from the army for one year. During that year, he kept writing Congress shitty letters about Washington. He had hoped that Congress would overturn his court-martial. I also kind of want to note that Congress did not immediately affirm the outcome of this court-martial, which was kind of always a sore point for Washington, specifically during this time, because he wanted the whole thing to be over, and he was not willing to release the verdict to the public until Congress affirmed that it was a true outcome. But eventually, Congress would re- would do that. In 1780, friends of Washington challenged Lee to a duel, which we're not actually 100% positive if Washington had knowledge of this or not, although I assume he actually did because Hamilton was there. And I don't imagine Hamilton would have attended if Washington expressly forbid it unless he just like totally didn't tell him. Yeah, I, I read that he did know, and he was like, don't do that. Wink, <laughs> wink. No, please don't. No, no, like, yeah. no. Uh, that, would be, that would be horrible if you did that. And so Lee was wounded in the duel and he died, in, but he didn't die then. He actually just died later in 1782, so two years after this duel of pneumonia, probably because he was living in filthy conditions with all of his fucking poodles because he was a dirty little jerk even on his deathbed though he would insist that washington never gave him direct orders like last breath he never told me to do anything (laughs) (laughs) and so interestingly enough this is crazy in 2014 a historian named philip pappas wrote that lee could not necessarily be blamed for his actions because he most likely had some sort of bipolar disorder and was manic depressive so (laughs) the people that we still put in charge (laughs) i know right? Even more interestingly though, and we touched on this earlier, Lee most certainly committed actual treason way before this court-martial. Like actual treason. So in 1860, about a hundred years after his death, a historian discovered and published letters written by Lee to Howe during his imprisonment and imprisonment that spelled out exactly how the British could win the war. He's like, and we, and we did talk about this a little earlier, but he was like, so if you want to win, like, this is how you do it because these guys are fucking stupid. And, like, they, we didn't find this out till like, way later. So I guess to wrap this all up, one of the books we use for a reference on this show is titled The Indispensable Man. And I very much think that this point right now, Washington proved himself to be the Patriots' indispensable man. Not my like favorite a, book, but... Right. No, no, a I mean, uh, fitting title. 
fitting title. And like a motherfucking phoenix, this guy rises up from the ashes of Valley Forge, right? You could say he displayed his ability to take broken, retreating, frightened army, induce them to turn around and repel what could have been an actual British victory. So, uh, yeah, this was a really like powerful battle and moment in George Washington's life. And like I said, this was actually the longest day of battle that he and the army fought for the whole war. So uh, I hope you enjoyed kind of, I don't know, learning a little bit about it there. You're, you're for fucking li- welcome. Listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. I fail on the American system of individual enterprise, and all your cause to any general extension of government ownership has come at all. I believe not only in advocating economy and public expenditure, but in its practical application and actual accomplishment. I believe in a reduction and reform of taxation.